0: The goal is to explain what the brain does, specifically that allows it to have the intrinsic qualities we have, like experiencing how ice cream tastes or how music sounds. Not just processing the information, which can be given an extrinsic account, but transforming that information into consciousness.
1: Welcome back to the next Big Idea Daily. I'm your host, Michael Kovnat, and I'm here to tell you that you live in two worlds. You really do there's your internal world of feelings memories sensations thoughts and then there's the external world everything outside of your personal experience other people nature the world as measured by science these worlds are different they really are they play by different rules and reconciling them is key to trying to solve the riddle of consciousness and that's the subject of the new book the world behind the world Consciousness, Free Will, and the Limits of Science by Eric Hoel. Eric is a neuroscientist at Tufts University and was named one of the Forbes 30 Under 30 in Science. His writing has appeared in The Atlantic, The Baffler, and The Daily Beast, among other publications. He joins us now to share five of his big ideas.
0: There are two fundamental perspectives on the world. The first is the extrinsic. This is the explanation of the world that's about mechanism, that's about what causes what. An engineering diagram is extrinsic. There's also the intrinsic perspective on the world. Thoughts, feelings, contemplations, emotions, these are all the intrinsic phenomena. The intrinsic perspective is about consciousness, what it is like to be you. Depending on what you want to explain, we shift fluidly between giving an extrinsic account or an intrinsic account. Sometimes we even accidentally use one for the other when we shouldn't. A car breaks down and we say, talk to me, tell me what's wrong, tell me what's wrong. But generally, such mixing is a mistake. We don't reconcile them. In fact, it's as if we have two extremely different lenses that we use to understand everyday things. Scientists, however, do try to reconcile the two perspectives, an effort called the search for a scientific theory of consciousness. The goal is to explain what the brain does, specifically that allows it to have the intrinsic qualities we have, like experiencing how ice cream tastes or how music sounds. Not just processing the information, which can be given an extrinsic account, but transforming that information into consciousness. The intrinsic is often the topic of the humanities, from literature to art. In a way, then, neuroscience is the bridge between the humanities and the rest of the sciences. It is only in the brain that the two perspectives are somehow perfectly, fluidly, every day, at every waking moment, fully reconciled. Of course, the brain doesn't have to calculate this miraculous transformation any more than a thrown rock has to do calculus, but clearly some calculation should be able to describe this reconciliation. It's like we're missing certain laws of nature, the law that governs how a certain neural firing is accompanied by or transformed into a certain experience, which means there is a big hole in the middle of the world. The intrinsic perspective didn't start out fully developed, and neither did the extrinsic. Julian Jaynes discussed this in his cult classic book The Origin of Consciousness and the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind. His hypothesis is that consciousness arose from the integration of the hemispheres, at around the Homeric times. It's a wild hypothesis, and the only evidence is a careful textual analysis. While I think the support for consciousness arising in the Homeric era is very low, there's an almost as interesting alternative hypothesis, that our descriptions of minds has grown increasingly detailed and complex over time, just as our descriptions of the extrinsic universe has. One could go over the evidence for this forever, but I think it's most salient to take a single example, essentially the same story told over and over throughout the ages. Let's start with the story of the shipwreck sailor, which is a tale from ancient Egypt, and which we still have some copies of. It's about a shipwreck on an island that contains a monstrous snake. Here's from a translation. I uncovered my face and found there was a snake that was coming. It was 30 cubits long. His beard, it was greater than two cubits long. His body was overlaid with gold, and he was bent up in front. He opened his mouth to me while I was on my belly in his presence. He said to me, who has brought you, commoner? Who brought you to this island and the sea whose sides are in the water? The story of the shipwrecked sailor basically gets retold throughout the millennia. So many aspects of it are in later tales, like the running with a monster on a strange island. Those crop up in the Odyssey. Uh, Odysseus and his men famously wander into the cave of a dangerous Cyclops. But in the Odyssey, at least some of the men's I- intrinsic perspective is actually noted and told. Quote, But when he had busily performed his task, then he rekindled the fire and caught sight of us and asked, strangers, who are ye? Whence do ye sail over the watery ways? Is it on some business or do ye wander at random over the sea, even as pirates who wander? So he spoke and in our breasts our spirit was broken for terror of his deep voice and monstrous self. Yet even so I made answer and spoke to him. And now let's look at the same Encounter between a man and a beast, but this time in Ulysses by James Joyce, which is, of course, a heavily modernized retelling of the Odyssey. What follows is sometimes called the Cyclops part of Ulysses, with a pub being like the cave, and it's also guarded by a monster, except this time it's a dog, and owned by a Cyclops, except this time it's just a huge guy with an eye patch. Quote So we turned into Barney Curens, and there, sure enough, was the citizen, Cyclops, up in the corner, having a great confab with himself and that bloody, mangy mongrel, Garrowan, and he waiting for what the sky would drop in the way of drink. There he is, says I. The bloody mongrel let out a grouse out of him that would give you the creeps be a corporal work of mercy if someone would take the life of that bloody dog, I'm told for a fact he ate a good part of the breeches off a constabulary man in Santry that came round one time with a blue paper about a license. That's the development of the intrinsic perspective. From what is a flat and unemotional reaction to a legitimate monster, a huge snake, to describing every speck of thought in reaction to a common dog. Reconciling the two perspectives requires a science of consciousness. In the modern age, the two perspectives on the world are highly developed. We can talk about minds with ease, we can talk about atoms with ease. But the perspectives are extremely different, so how do we reconcile them? That's the job of what's called the search for a scientific theory of consciousness. It was originally pioneered by two titans of science, Francis Crick and Gerald Edelman both of whom won the Nobel Prize for different reasons. They both fixated on consciousness as one of the last big unanswered questions in science. How does the brain generate experiences, sensations, thoughts? Well, this may seem the obvious goal of neuroscience, for a long time consciousness was verboten in science. It was worried that if the intrinsic perspective was allowed in, uh, this might shatter the extrinsic one that science is based on. However, the good thing about winning a Nobel Prize is that you can do whatever you want. So both men did, and through their efforts, they established the subfield of neuroscience that studies consciousness. Their approaches were different. Francis Crick, co-discoverer of the structure of DNA, took a more conservative approach and began the search for what he called the neural correlates of consciousness. The idea was just to examine the brain and look for correlations between neural activity and experiences, and that a theory would follow empirical work. Comparatively, Edelman wanted a big theoretical leap forward, and then to support that with empirical work. Two houses of research, if you will, one for Crick, the other for Edelman, and while both have shown promise, ultimately, as it stands, there is no final conclusion, there is no well-supported theory of consciousness. But thanks to them, we have some guesses, some theories, and a growing scientific field. The scientific worldview doesn't necessarily entail you don't have free will. By the way, such arguments actually affect people's behavior. Studies have shown that a belief in free will is associated with healthy psychological profiles, like being unlikely to be depressed, and so on. Usually free will denial is given a form of something like this, quote, since you are made up of physical atoms and your atoms are following the laws of physics, and they are the ones that cause everything you do, you yourself don't cause anything. Another example might be, since it is possible to predict the future state of the universe from the current state, your actions are predetermined. And often this is framed as the scientific worldview itself ensuring that this is true. But these arguments have not reckoned with some of the major scientific changes in our understanding of the world just in the last few decades, and combine these changes to our understanding do give us something that arguably looks a lot like a scientific argument for free will. First, there's been the development of chaos theory and the study of what's called computationally irreducibility. The conclusion of this field can be summed up as something like, while a given system might be following predetermined rules, it may be completely impossible, even in principle, to predict what that system will do unless you watch what it does. And this is why, no matter how fine-grained our measurements of the weather become, we can never actually predict the weather. We just have to wait and see what happens. But it seems quite likely that the brain satisfies this property as well, and it would be impossible to predict ahead of time. You simply have to wait and see. While perhaps some perfect model could be used for predictions, this doesn't eliminate the unpredictability of that further model itself. That is, the science of complex systems means that an argument that you don't have free will because it is theoretically possible to predict your actions has a definition of predictions that has been bled dry entirely and is toothless. The second major change is even less well-known, and that is an improved grasp of causation and causal modeling. This has led to a better understanding of what does what, but it has also shown a counterintuitive truth, which is that under the right conditions, causal emergence can occur, where the higher levels of a physical system can have irreducible causal power, just like the lower ones. So, causal emergence renders untrue statements like, you didn't move your arm, your atoms did it, because actually your atoms don't appropriately account for the causation involved in moving your arm. Causal emergence comes when the higher levels of description of a system, like a psychological description of a brain, add error correction into the causal relationships of the parts of the system or its effects. And these two changes together mean that a lot of the more common and powerful arguments that the scientific worldview rules out free will are now untrue, especially as it's highly possible that the brain itself satisfied these conditions and has these properties, that is, it may be both fundamentally unpredictable and causally emergent. Either way, until that's figured out, we should hold off declaring free will deceased.
1: Thank you, Eric. Well, I guess the jury is still out on whether or not you have free will, but I can at least suggest that you come on back tomorrow. I'll have some more big ideas for you, this time about parenting. We're going to hear from Melinda Wenner-Moyer, author of How to Raise Kids Who Aren't Assholes, Science-Based Strategies for Better Parenting from Tots to Teens. Sorry to say, but I'm betting there's some of you out there who could benefit. To make sure you never miss out on a big idea, sign up for my free newsletter using the link in the episode notes. I'll send you a weekly roundup of the best new nonfiction for you to check out at your leisure. Also, check out our next big idea app wherever you get your apps. I'm Michael Kovnat. See you tomorrow.